On today's episode, Anna shares the story of Dennis Nelson, a Scottish serial killer who murdered at least 15 young men and stored their corpses under the floorboards of his home. Then later, Ashley shares the story of the Phantom Killer, a man who created sheer panic across a small southern town when he began attacking and killing teenage couples on lovers' lanes. Welcome to Crime Bar. Um, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited for our first uh, virtual session. I know. I hope it sounds okay. Me too. It's clipped on my dining room chair and I'm like slumped in a way that I have five chins, but people can't see us. So yeah. it's cool. No one will ever know. I'm no like one will tucked, ever know. I'm tucked into this tight corner of our spare bedroom and I'm on our podcast couch. So it feels like... Like it's really happening. Yeah, it feels like it's really happening again. I've missed doing this. And because it's 10 in the morning, I don't actually have any wine. I have coffee. Yeah, yeah, which is actually better for our brains and our listeners. I won't be slurring halfway through. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. We could actually have wine. Yeah, we could. It is quarantine. Yes. I mean, people understand. Uh Uh-huh. So I went to this birthday engagement celebration last night, and I was so excited when I found someone that just had an extreme amount of bad I don't want to say bad luck but I I would I would call it that um I feel like when you're like us and you just are obsessed with murderers and crime you find that person at a party that's gonna like give you all the stories of course you know what I mean yeah you're immediately like that's what you lead with I feel like when you're like us yeah um and he ends up sitting down and we like all gathered around like campfire style on this rooftop (laughs) and he just like shared the most horrific of stories that have happened to him like as a child and then in college and you know just all your traumas yeah totally but it was so good and there's like tell one me? of course no i'm just gonna tell you they were incredible <laughs> at the time of my life and you weren't there and i'm so sorry <laughs> no they i'm gonna start with the one that i feel like i held my breath the entire time that was he it, was telling it was he like a good storyteller too he, I'm like about to, I'm about to like say something. I'm like, nah, he could have been better. But no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He totally was. And you can tell like there was like fear in his voice as oh, he's telling it, which yeah. just made, it was so enthralling. Yeah. Um, but I'm just going to jump in because you know that storytelling is like not my strong suit, even though oh, I'm on a podcast. <laughs> don't sell yourself short. Every time it's you try to get so distracted. Oh, no. Okay, you're okay. going to tell me? <laughs> yes, I'm going to tell you. I'm, I'm taking a deep breath because I'm, I'm literally doing this from memory. So I just want to recall okay. every detail properly. It's going to be like a that game of telephone. Okay, so he starts out by saying that he is from this small town right outside of Colorado Springs. And it's called Monument, I believe. And he was raised by this military family and he grew up in a military community. So everyone is just basically on the same boat. And when he was little... He would walk to and from school by himself. And it was just like one of those places that you could do that. It was just a safe, small town community. Everyone knew each other. 
And he is walking with his little sister one day to school. And I believe he said that he was in third grade and she was in preschool. And so is and this guy like our age, like late 20s? Early I want to say he's probably late 20s. I would, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he later told a story where he was in college and he said 2011. So I'm assuming in oh, the okay. same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they would walk to and from school every day. And there was one particular day where he, out of the corner of his eye, sees this van. You know, like one of those vans with like the wood paneling on the side. Yes. <laughs> like just super 80s. I don't even know the, yeah. the decade that that thing is from. But he sees this man slowing down and following him. Uh-huh. And he's going block after block after block. And this van is just lingering. It should have passed him by now. And it's not. And as a third grader, I thought this was very impressive that he, his gut just knew something was off. And he tells his sister, he leans into her and he says, when I tell you to run, I want you to run as fast as you can and you need to start banging on a neighbor's door. Oh. And it's this fan. Did he, I just gave myself chills. I know. I just had to, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I had to readjust in my seat. Yes. Yeah. It's so unsettling. Palms are sweating right now. So he... He, as a like eight year old, knows to do this, and she, of course, is confused. I don't think she asked him any questions, but they just proceed. They keep walking. This fan approaches them, and he rolls down his window, and he says, "You know, hey guys, you you guys want a, a ride to school?" Oh. And he goes, "No, no, thank you. Like we're just gonna walk." And he goes, "No, seriously, like come on in. Like I'll just give you a ride. It's quicker." And he keeps insisting, "No, sir, we do not want a ride." And they keep on walking. He stops the car, he gets out of the van, and he says, seriously, get into the car. I will give you a ride. I know. And I don't know how the next part transpired, but ultimately, I think he lunged at the little girl. And he tells her, he just yells, run. And she just starts booking it, just absolutely sprints. And he then goes after him. So he's running around the van, running in circles, trying to get this man to stop. And he's this, he described him as severely overweight and that he was like a track star third grader. So yeah. he's like, I can definitely outrun this guy. Yeah. So he eventually books it towards the door that his sister is pounding on. And they know the woman. Um, they're familiar with everybody in the neighborhood. They are both pounding, screaming with everything that they have to make somebody open up. And he just fills with dread because he has this realization that they live in a military neighborhood and it's people are not consistently home. Yeah. And he just knew at that moment that they could be knocking at every single door on this neighborhood and no one would answer and help them. Oh. And it felt like minutes went by and eventually a woman in rollers answers the door and she's so confused, you know, by this like these two panicked children yeah and they bulldoze through just absolutely plow through the doorway because they just want to get inside and close the door yeah and as they get inside and are trying to close the door the man jumps out of his van because he's driven up the street jumps out of the van and puts his door in between the door and the doorway so that they cannot close it he he is trying to get into the house oh you mean they have his foot yeah, door. he put his foot. What did I say? You said he put his door in the door, and I was like, "Yeah, he, he put his door. <laughs> <laughs> he plowed his van." <laughs> That's what I thought. Through you that said. House. I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> Seriously, God, that'd be a lot of damage. Um, no, he puts his foot 
oh into my the God. doorway. Yes. And stops the door. And the minute I heard this, I just had like this gut wrenching feeling of realizing that there are maniacs out there that do not care that you are under adult supervision and that you're now inside someone else's home. They are going to get you. So desperate. Yeah. So desperate. And so he stops the door and the guy telling the story says that he was absolutely mind blown because his little sister, who's a preschooler, knew to run at that door with all of her weight and slam it against the door oh. so that it would hurt his foot. And I just loved oh that. Oh my God, I love it. And that is such a sibling thing to do. The amount of times that I've done that to my brother and sister and they weren't trying to kidnap me. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm going to break this person's foot. Yeah. And he basically takes it as his cue to run at the door as well. And then the woman that lives in the house runs toward the door and they're doing everything they can to shut this door. And he reaches through and he's using his arm to try to grab them. Oh, my God. Yeah. I I just got chills again. But so then he starts yelling. The woman is saying, who are you? Like, what do you want? And this man goes, those are my kids. Let me have my kids. And she goes, no, these are not your kids. This is, you know, so-and-so's kids because she knows their parents. And he's insisting, no, you have it wrong. These are my children. And she goes, how about I call them right now and we can confirm that these are not your children. And he goes, go ahead. (gasps) Oh, my God. Yeah, an absolute psycho. At that point, I mean, any normal, I mean, any normal person wouldn't have their foot (laughs) jammed into a door (laughs) reaching for children. Right. But But you um, think he'd bail on the idea by now. Oh, yeah, the audacity that he had, the follow through. And she obviously calls. But at this point, you know, he he takes that as his cue to then leave and get into the van. And he drives off. And uh, apparently later on, they, you know, they're able to, you know, locate him and arrest him. Um, And I like spent all morning Googling. I was like monument kidnapping. And there's there's a few. (laughs) But um, scary. Is that frightening? And I'll that, tell his other one maybe next week because <laughs> it's re- so good. That reminds me of this story. It's like almost identical. My aunt owns a children's amusement park. It's very small in the Bay Area. And my a bunch of my family members like run the amusement park. And uh, one of my cousins, when he was very little, like his mom and grandma they work and own and run this park and so he as like a five-year-old would just like run free through the park because god and it's very small but like you don't think anything of it but you don't think anything of it because every employee knows you know that's bradley that's the owner's son and it to an outsider it looks like he's unsupervised but really there's like he's being supervised by every employee Exactly. And so there was this time he's running around and I don't know how old he was. He was little like that. He was like five or six. He's running around and this man comes up and he grabs his hand and he's like, come on, it's time to go. And and he Bradley pulls back and he's like, I don't know you. And he's like, come on, come on, it's time to go. And Bradley's mom walks up and she's like, excuse me, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, uh, I'm just trying to take him back to his mom. And she's like, I'm his mom. Oh my God. The luck of that. He was not expecting that. I know. So he's like floored and then tries to leave. And they 
She's like, oh, no, no, this is not what your story is. Exactly. But she was like in employee clothes. So it just looked like this little boy was unsupervised and she was just an employee who was like trying to intervene. So it was like amazing that she's like, no, no, I'm his mother. I am. I birthed him, actually. They called the police. He had a fucking van in the parking lot and he (gasps) had a little girl with him. And what? I know. And Ashley, we have been friends for years and you've never thought to share this i could barely keep that other story from you for 24 hours it's been like 12 i forgot all about it it was so long ago bradley's like an adult now so i forgot about it but i mean it's like identical like to claim like he yes to claim as if it's your own yeah wild audacity Mm -hmm. he's a good liar but thank goodness for bradley's sake and everyone else in the family yeah so uh, why is an adult by himself at a children's amusement park? Well, he had a little kid with him. Oh, but it God. I'm just sure wasn't his own. Was, I am sure it wasn't. Yeah, of course not. But anyway, um, so what is your story today? Okay. So uh, p- Ashley, pause one second. I need to just crack my back and get into character. One moment. That sounded creepy. Like I'm about to transform <laughs> into a superhero. Let me crack my back. <laughs> one second. yes okay so today i'm going to tell you guys about a very disturbing little man named dennis nelson and he is also known as the muswell or muswell hill murderer Mm. Um, everything about this man's crimes are next level disgusting uh, so obviously I wanted to talk about it with you for an hour. <laughs> of course. <laughs> want to break it down what fact by to, fact. Yeah. What better way to start the day? Yeah. It's Saturday, 10 a.m. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on December 30th, 1978, a 14-year-old boy named Stephen Holmes met the man that would soon end his life. It was a freezing cold night, but Dennis forced himself to leave his apartment so that he could socialize and find a companion to share a drink with. When he walked into Cricklewood Arms Pub, he saw a young boy failing at his attempts to buy alcohol at the bar. So Stephen was happy when an older man approached him and said that he could have a few drinks with him back at his place. Unfortunately, this older man was Dennis Nielsen, a deeply disturbed individual that would change the course of Stephen's life forever. They went back to Dennis's place, listened to music and down drink after drink after drink. By the end of the night, they were both heavily intoxicated and passed out in Dennis's bed. The next morning, Nelson woke with this overwhelming anxiety over Stephen leaving him and in this panic started demanding that he was to stay with him over the new year, whether he wanted to or not. Just like a stage five clinger. (laughs) He took the Sunday scaries a little too far. Just a smidge. This is smidge. What? You cannot leave me. (laughs) Did you say this was the beginning of December? So this was December 30th specifically. Oh, I thought you said 3rd. Yeah. I was like, so he's demanding that he stay through for over a a month? month? Yeah. Yeah. You live here now, baby. (laughs) Um, I'm sure Stephen was completely alarmed by this demand and didn't seem interested at all. But Dennis really did not want him to leave. So... Okay, deep breath. Um, he proceeded to strangle Stephen with a necktie until he was unconscious. Ugh. He then drowned him in a bucket of water. Oh. Yeah, it's a signature of his. After Stephen had died, ugh, 
After Steven had died, he masturbated on the body two times before hiding him under the floorboards of his home. My new neighbors that just moved in, our walls are very thin and they're probably listening to this. They're like, what the fuck? They're like, can we break our lease? (laughs) Um, Let's just bring it back from the beginning. Dennis Nilsson was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Fraserburgh, Scotland. He was the second of three children. To say that his relationship with his father was strained would be a massive understatement. He felt completely neglected because his father's duties with the Norwegian Free Forces apparently completely outweighed the importance of his family. Um, There isn't a ton of information on his family life, but it just seems like it was dysfunctional and lacked consistency and structure. Like a lot of people. So there's really no excuse, Dennis. Yeah, no. His parents' marriage was a very unhappy one. And eventually Dennis, his mother, and siblings moved in with his maternal grandfather. Hello? I coughed. <laughs> oh, okay, 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 okay. I was like, I was like, oh my god, hello? <laughs> She's like, I can't, I can't hear this anymore. I muted. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm done. I'm, this I'm, is getting weird. I muted myself to cough. <laughs> Just buckle up, sweetie. It's about to get a lot weirder than that. Um <laughs> Nilsson was super close to his grandpa and described him as his great protector and hero, which is so sweet. Um, There's really nothing better than like a very solid grandpa. Yeah. And I just think that Dennis ended up based off of what I read. It just he ended up relying on him a little too much. It just passed a point of it being healthy. Um. And I think it was just he grew up in like this inconsistent, you know, home that lacked structure and a weird father figure and he was just clinging on to anything that was solid yeah and um he said at one point that he recalled that there'd be times that his grandpa who was a fisherman by the way um would go off to sea and dennis would say that his life was just empty until he returned oh i know it's really sad it's kind of cute but a little desperate dennis um (laughs) It sounds like his grandpa just took over the role of his father. And unfortunately, uh, his grandpa passed away from a heart attack in 1951. And this is when Dennis's world crumbled. He became withdrawn and retreated from spending any time with his family. Later on in life, Nelson explains that his psychopathology was caused by losing his grandpa and having to see his dead corpse at the funeral. So I don't know if this is technically true, but I'm sure that that was probably scarring to see like your most beloved family member yeah. laying in a casket. Yeah. I have never attended one of those, Oh, but I, I don't think I could get through. Is it horrific? It's, it feels a little surreal and yeah, it's, 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 it's I don't know. It's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. And I don't I- want to knock it or be disrespectful about it, but I just... I wouldn't want my family members to see me specifically yeah. in that situation. That's and it's scarring. Hard. A lot of people just it's it's different for everyone, and and it's 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 so complicated. Yeah, and I get that it's a thing of closure, but also like yeah, as a child seeing yeah, that <laughs> it can be a, it can be closure for some people, and it could be so traumatic for others. And you never know, and your mental state is so delicate. I mean, not yours, but people in general, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I would not want to risk it. Yeah. Exactly. So anyways, back to to this. Uh, Nelson was pretty young when he discovered that he was attracted to other men. And sadly, this brought him a great deal of shame. He decided early on that his sexuality was better kept as a secret. 
And like when, what year was that? So he was born in 45 and it just said that he discovered this early on. So it didn't, but that's just, I mean, the times are different. And I mean, now people are still judgmental about that, unfortunately. But especially then it was. Absolutely. Back then it was to him, it was shameful. Yeah. Um, And you're, you're really not going to like this. Um, I did not like reading this next part, but it's so key to not leave this out. (laughs) Um, He said that the boys that he was attracted to actually looked a lot like his sister. Oh, which is so brutal. Being a woman reading that being like, Thanks, bro. Thanks, bro. That is so bad on so many levels. <laughs> so insulting. So on one occasion, he fondled her in hopes of revealing that he wasn't, in fact, a homosexual. His but that sister? He just, yeah, no, no, oh. no, no. That he just cared deeply for her. Oh. There's just some misguided curiosity. Oh, yes. I don't know. I think I think he wanted to prove so badly that he wasn't attracted to men that he rather, I guess you know, perform incest yeah. to avoid being that. Yeah. Um, he also attempted to fondle his brother as he slept one night. And when his brother woke up, he absolutely panicked. Um, and the brother picked up on the fact that maybe he likes men. And this was just a lot for him to process. And he began to harass him and bully him for the fact that he was a homosexual. Mm-hmm. So as you can see, confusion, traumas, misguided curiosity, I don't know if you can even call it that, but it was just all piling up and screams combustion to me. Yes. (laughs) Um, As he got older, his small town felt suffocating and he knew he needed to get out as soon as possible. When Dennis turned 16, he joined the Army Cadet Force and became a butcher in the Army Catering Corps. And when I read that, I was like, there's really nothing like going into the force to learn how to fight and then working in catering. Yeah. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, but no, I, I would probably like, take that route too. He's like, yeah. I think I'm going to be a chef. <laughs> <laughs> um, these butchering skills would eventually serve him during his killing spree later on in his life. Um, not to give anything away, but you know, spoiler. This alert. is a murder. This is, this is a murder podcast. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. in 1964, he served as a private, and during this deployment, he began to drink excessively. When he and his colleagues would drink themselves into oblivion, he discovered his sexual fantasies were triggered by the thought of his partner being unconscious. Oh, yeah, no red flag. Ooh. So basically, he was turned on by the thought of his partner being incapacitated. So on multiple occasions, he would pretend to drink himself to the point of unconsciousness in hopes that one of the other men would take advantage of him. Oh, so it was like either way he wanted to. Yeah, he played all roles. (laughs) These fantasies only escalated and became more disturbing as he began to imagine having intercourse with the dead bodies he had seen killed during battle. Oh. I literally wrote, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. In true Ash fashion. Yes. No, 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 no. Let's fast forward to 1975 when Dennis met 20-year-old David Gallican outside of a London pub. The two men spent their night talking and drinking, and I think they just had one of those, like, instant bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout all of this, he discovered that David liked men as well. Um, they decided to move in together the very next day. Okay. 
not a relationship expert, but I don't think that that was wise. No. No judgment. Sometimes no. it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's no shock that their relationship quickly became strained and they both began to bring other sexual partners home. Um, all of the relationships in his life failed over the next 18 months and he started to find himself alone and deemed himself unfit to live with. He deemed himself that? Yeah, he just figured he's like, if every single relationship I've entered into over the past year and a half isn't working, then maybe there's something wrong with me. And he was actually right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he was pretty spot on. But He wasn't too far off with that uh, diagnosis, but it's sad because, hey, everyone's been single for 1.5 years and had a hard time dating, you know, especially in L.A. Yeah. Between the years of 1978 and 1983, Dennis murdered 12 men and attempted to kill seven others. Ugh. Detectives are pretty sure that that number doesn't even come close to his real body count. Um, most of his victims were either homeless or homosexual. The more the majority in which he met in bars or public transport. Mm. And because of this, many of his victims were sadly missed by less people just because of the lifestyles that they lived. Mm -hmm. And of course, I mean, I feel like it goes without saying, but being homeless or transient does not make your life any less valuable. It's just no, something not. that you see a lot in yeah. these stories. Like when we do easy targets. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's all bad. But one particular case creeped me out just a little extra. Um, in December of 1979, Nilsson murdered a 23-year-old man named Kenneth Ockenden. And I'm so sorry if I didn't get that right. Um, once again, Nilsson met Kenneth in a pub. When he learned that Kenneth was a tourist, he promised to show him the city as well as feed him back at his home. When they got to Dennis's house, um, he strangled him with the wire from his headphones. Oh, just dragging like right him, off the bat? Just right off the bat. No cocktails, no food. Just puts, you know, headphones around his neck and strangles him. Um, drags him across the room until he died. He then thought, apparently, I could really use the cocktail. So he pours himself a glass of rum and listens to music on the headphones that he just used to kill Kenneth. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I know. The whole the whole time I was like out loud saying, "Oh no, no, no." Or, "Oh, mm -hmm. Dennis." And so like <laughs> Come on. all these details he admitted these freely later? Oh, oh yeah, you'll you'll find out later that he was incredibly flexible. Like I think he enjoyed being questioned and telling everybody of, you know, step by step. Oh, one of those. He's one of those like a really showy guy. There is like no shame with the yeah. things that he did to people. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not done. Uh, he stowed Kenneth under the floorboards and on four different occasions retrieved his body and sat him on the sofa next to him and then just decided to watch TV and have a drink. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the following year was filled with similar stories, luring young men and boys to his home with the promise of food, shelter, or sex, only to strangle them, masturbate, and photograph their corpses before hiding them under their floorboards. Hmm. Can you imagine that smell? Like, not to make light of it or anything, but no, I mean, that's it, it. Was he like in an actual home? Because he's in so, London, so that's probably like a town like flat. Yeah, you have to say flat if we're talking about. Well, I know, but I mean, yeah. like, it, <laughs> I'm kidding. It's like in a building. Oh yes, absolutely. It's in so a building. He's got and neighbors. you. Oh yeah, there, there's more to come. Stay tuned on that. But when I read that, I was like, I 
have damp towels that are in my bathroom for not even 24 hours and yeah. my entire place reeks. Yeah. I can so smell it So I don't know what he here. was doing. Oh, absolutely. Oh. You live like 45 minutes away and you can smell it. <laughs> Um, the murders became more frequent and the accumulating corpses under the floorboards began to smell and attract bugs. Despite Nilsson spraying the bodies with insecticide and deodorants twice a day. Like, I don't even have a deodorant that works like through a mediocre workout class. So I don't know what he was thinking. Um, to get rid of the smell that was getting progressively worse, he would dismember them on the kitchen floor with a large kitchen knife and on occasion boiled the skulls to remove the flesh. Uh, it, everything is so wrong. So he he wrong. checks, he checks every box. Yeah. He buried limbs in the garden and in the shed and stuffed torsos into suitcases until he could find an opportunity to burn the remains in a communal bonfire behind his home. Oh, literally the worst neighbor. He is literally hoarding. Yes, like the yes, hoarding of- bodies. Oh. He's surrounded by them everywhere, and unfortunately, he's putting bodies around everyone else's home as well. Yeah, just an unaware man, very selfish. <laughs> um, once again, not making light of this. That's horrific. I just can't even wrap my head around that. No. I walk so lightly on my floorboards so that I don't like disrupt my downstairs neighbors. <laughs> yeah. So this guy is just <laughs> selfish. Um, in 1981, Nelson murdered an unidentified eight-year-old man after meeting him at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho. He convinced the young man to come back to his house with the promise of a drinking competition. Nelson strangled him with a tie and then buried him under the floorboards. The next day, he called in sick to work so that he could dismember and burn the body. What did he do for work again? Don't ask me. Oh. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) He didn't look it up. No? Oh, God. Should I do it right now? No. Okay, cool. (laughs) No, I should (laughs) have. Fuck. (laughs) I was too stuck on everything else. No, Um, it's fine. It doesn't even matter. Okay. That year, Nelson's landlord asked him to vacate the property due to renovations. Considering the situation he was hiding inside of his house, he was hesitant at first, but eventually accepted the 1,000 pounds in exchange for vacating this property. He dissected, he just got right to work. He dissected and burned the remaining bodies in the communal bonfire before moving to a flat in Cranley Gardens. The killings did not stop there. Uh, In January of 1983, he killed his final victim, a 20-year-old named Stephen Sinclair. It's always tough gauging whether someone is a Stephen or a Stephen, so I'm really sorry. When there's like a PH in their name, I'm like, Stephen Stephen Sinclair. Um, So there's the 50% 50 chance that I'm saying that wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, When they were back at Dennis's place, he strangled Stephen Stephen with rope and a necktie. He bathed his body covered him with talcum powder, and then splayed him out onto his bed. He surrounded the corpse with mirrors. Oh. Nilsson kisses him goodnight and falls asleep alongside the corpse. Oh. I think he wanted to see himself, like, with a companion from all angles. Oh. That's what I'm gathering. Um, Nilsson attempted to dispose of his internal organs and flesh by flushing them down the toilet. Oh, no, that's, no, it's not how that works. You can't it's not how it works. No. 
you can't, can't even flush do paper that with towels tampons. or tampons. <laughs> I said the same thing. I literally wrote that down. I'm like, uh, tampons in parentheses. <laughs> what kind of plumbing did you have? Um, but the next month, he had the audacity to complain to the estate agents that his drains were blocked. <laughs> okay. Dennis, give me a break. The unlucky plumber that responded to the complaints was the first to discover the murders. Oh, that poor guy. <laughs> I Seriously, he's like, I thought this was just going to be an odd job. On February 8th, 1983, Michael Catran opened a drain cover on the side of the house and found small bones and flesh. When Nilsson was confronted about the discovery, he exclaimed, it looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> oh, Oh, which is so like his sense of humor is so sick. And like, I kind of like giggled for a second. And I was like, do not make me laugh. You yeah. icky man. Yeah. <laughs> Nilsson cleared the drains that evening before the plumbers returned the next morning. When they saw the recently cleaned drains, it only raised their suspicions more. The police were called and remains were found in another pipe that was being inspected. After determining that they were in fact human remains and not KFC, Detective Peter J. waited at Nilsson's flat until he returned from work. They immediately noticed the distinct smell of rotting flesh upon entering his home. At first, Nilsson acted shocked when the detective stated that the plumbing blockages were actually due to the human flesh that he was flushing down. <laughs> <laughs> um, the detectives told him to cut his act immediately. They just knew that he was guilty. There was no way around it. Mm -hmm. He eventually pointed the men to the remaining bodies that were stowed in plastic bags in his wardrobe. When questioned about the number of bodies in his flat, he said there were 15 or 16 since, you know, 1978. Oh, Nilsson was quite flexible when he was questioned back at the police station. He was super open to telling everybody that would listen where the remainder of the body parts were located. I hate those when guys. I hate it too because it's like they think it's like a performance piece. Yeah. Um, when he was asked why he would do the things that he did, he literally replies with, "I'm hoping you'll tell me that." Oh. <laughs> yeah. So flippant. He confessed to boiling their heads shaving the dead bodies, putting makeup and clothes on them, as well as masturbating alongside them. He made it super clear that he never actually had sex with the bodies because they were too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. <laughs> oh, that's where he draws. Okay. Oh. I said the same yeah. thing. I was like, so you're okay with killing and boiling heads, but you draw the line at necrophilia? Yeah. Even though he confessed to more victims, he was charged with six counts of murder and two attempted counts of murder on October 24th, 1983. Though he pled not guilty, his innocence was never a question. The prosecuting counsel just had to determine whether or not he was of sane mind during the murders. Yeah. The detective stated that he was calm and very collected when discussing what he had done. And he was, you know, very forthright with all the details of his horrific crimes. So on November 4th, 1983, the jury's verdict was that he was in fact guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. Hell yeah. I know. A little round of applause on that one. On May 12th, 2018, he had a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. As a result of a complication during that surgery, he suffered from a blood clot and passed away. Oh, what a shame. I know. Abrupt ending. You don't deserve any more. Mm-mm. <laughs> So it sounds like there was some survivors. Do you know anything about 
their stories? Yes. So instead of ending on Dennis's sentence or death, I thought talking about and honoring a survivor of his attacks was much more appropriate. Yeah. Um, Carl Stodder, a 21-year-old artist and fabulous singer and dancer, met Dennis while he was living in a hostel in London. Carl and Dennis shared drinks and conversation at the Black Cat Pub, and he later recalled how nice Dennis was to him, and that it felt really good to just talk to someone that had an interest in his family and life, and asked him questions. When Dennis offered to take him back to his flat in Muswell Hill, he accepted. Carl said they were drinking together, and he believes that he must have been drugged, because he passed out, and the next thing he knew, he had something tightened around his neck. And he was so disoriented because he wasn't sure that if there was even anything around his neck. He thought maybe he got tangled in something when he was sleeping, just while being intoxicated. Ugh, but I hate that feeling. Yeah. You're like rolled <laughs> up in your sheets. But um, unfortunately, it was uh, Dennis had used the zip from his sleeping bag to strangle him mm. and then began to drown him in the bath. At one point, Dennis decides that he does not want to kill Carl, and he began to give him mouth-to-mouth to to revive him. What? I know. Just at one point of, you know, even though he's murdered countless other people, he decides in the middle of Carl's murder to save him. Do you know if this was, like, at the beginning of his killing sprees? Like, was it, like, he maybe had it? So this was actually towards the end. This was in April of 1982. Oh, that's yeah, even, I thought that was really interesting. It's even weirder. All the while, Carl is going in and out of consciousness. After wrapping Carl in a blanket, he walked him to a tube station and left him. He had no idea why he decided to save him, often questioning whether or not Dennis was his murderer or his savior. Well, but in my opinion, it's like you wouldn't, been- <laughs> you wouldn't have been in a position to be saved if it wasn't for him. Exactly my thoughts when I was reading that. Um, That question would continue to haunt him for the rest of his life. Why would the man that had over a thousand human teeth and bone fragments, a boiled skull on his stove, and a wardrobe filled with internal organs save him? But while he... I know. (laughs) But while he did not kill him, he killed the Carl that his family had known and loved. He began to suffer from graphic flashbacks and ended up moving in with his mother. One day, the police officers showed up at their door, notifying them of Dennis's arrest. Having to face Dennis in court absolutely terrified him and his mental state began to decline even more. His little sister recalled him crying, cutting his wrists, and overdosing. She and her mother would often have to take their car to look for him, only to find him in the bushes in a horrible state. And it was so sad because she said that when her children were born, he was just cut out of their lives just because he was an alcoholic and he would do like very reckless things. And even though he was an incredibly sweet man, she just didn't trust having him around her children. So I think that that not to blame her in any way, because that's completely understandable, but I think it just isolated him even more. And his alcoholism caught up, to, caught up to him, and he eventually drank himself to death at the age of 52. Oh, that's so sad. There were other survivors, but as hard as I looked, I could not find any names or reports on the others. So oh. I don't know if they just wanted to keep their identities, you know, a secret and 
they didn't want to face him in court or I don't know any of the details just based off of Googling and trying to do some research. Um, Carl Stoddard was the only one that came forward and gave interviews and just very brave, very brave human, even though he most likely did not feel like he was. It's incredibly sad. And I, you know, I just wanted to throw in there. He was um, a very talented uh, drag performer. Oh, yes. I know. I loved that. And he was obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. And yeah. he would do an impersonation of her in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Oh, yes. And he handmade all of his costumes. Oh. And apparently he was just this amazing artist and performer. So that's, I just wanted to throw that in there. That's a nice way to end it on... I mean, it's it's like so bittersweet because it's the survival story is always amazing, but you know, in this case, it seems like it, you know, it just obviously did not have a happy ending. It destroyed him, you know, the PTSD, the flashbacks, and question. I think it's the survivor's guilt kicked yeah. in, yeah, which is and awful. It's, how often do you? It's not like he escaped his no attempted killer was the one to save him so it's like that's such a conflicting weird feeling oh psychologically speaking it's not like he was able to break away and just run he he was going in and out of consciousness so he doesn't really recall much of the murder aspect as much as him reviving him wrapping him in a blanket putting him near a heater and then bringing him to the tube station that's crazy yeah it's awful and if this case interests you there is a three-part British miniseries called Des that you can watch on ITV. Oh, okay. Yeah. So just so you know, what story are you doing this week? Today, I'm going to do the story of the Phantom Killer. Yeah. So it's kind of an old timey and full disclosure, it's unsolved. Oh, perfect. Love those. But it's old timey. So no, you hopefully they die. Be honest. You don't like those. I don't like the old timey ones because, you know, my twisted brain wants something more current i'm more intrigued by that but i do like to know if it is unsolved that they're most likely not alive anymore i thought you yeah i thought you didn't like the unsolved ones oh i thought you meant old-timey murders um yeah i don't like unsolved ones because i don't want the potential killers to go after us when we make a podcast episode about them oh (laughs) well it's strictly selfish this was my safety 1946 so i don't i think we're good i think we're good our odds are good yeah so I'm going to start off by telling you the legend of the hook. It's like a folklore, like scary story that people tell around campfires. And <laughs> it's been inspired, I think, because there's obviously it's a it's a legend. So there's no way to know where it came from. But I think it's inspired by this killer. There's rumors that it was also inspired by like the Zodiac Killer or Son of Sam. But um, I'm not covering those stories today. So I'm going to say that this is based off of my story. <laughs> Yeah, it applies to us right now. And there's different variations of it, but I'm just going to tell the one that I heard as a kid around a campfire. On a warm summer night after going on a date to the movies, a teenager drives his date to a quiet and dark lover's lane on an isolated country road. He turns on the radio to set the mood and they start making out. But within a couple of minutes, the music stops mid-song. After a moment of silence... An ominous voice comes over the radio announcing that a convicted murderer has escaped from a nearby insane asylum. 
The announcer notes that the man has a hook in place of his right hand and that he's extremely dangerous, so any sightings should be reported to the police immediately. The couple sits in silence for a moment before the girl suggests maybe they should go home now, and the boy shrugs it off and reassures her everything's fine, and he leans in to kiss her again. Oh my god. That's so infuriating to me. Because that would be me too. I'm like, babe, we have to go home. And he'd be like, it's all right. Nothing bad will happen to us. (laughs) Yes. A moment later, she hears a scratching sound outside of the car and asks if he heard it too. And he says no, but he takes a quick glance out the window and sees nothing. So he leans in to kiss her again. Then she hears the scratching sound again and starts to panic. So rather than acknowledge her concerns as valid, he rolls the windows up locks the doors, and tells her he will keep her safe and leans in to kiss her again. But when she hears the scratching sound for a third time, she freaks out and demands that he take her home right now. So the boy caves and agrees to take her back into town, but he's pissed about it, so he peels out of the road at a high speed, the way, you know, most 16-year-old boys do when they don't get their way. Exactly, so angsty. When they arrive at the girl's home, the boy gets out of the car and walks around to the passenger side door to open it for her. And that's when he finds, hanging on the door handle, a bloody hook. (gasps) So he had held on to the door, and then as they're peeling out... I don't know, it's not a real story. (laughs) Oh. Oh. I'm looking at the logistics of all this. Okay, keep going. It's supposed to, I think it's just supposed to be like the the murderer was going to them and started scratching at the door and he was trying to open it when the boy like drove off at a high speed and it ripped his hook off. Yeah, that's what I was assuming too. Okay, good. I'm glad we're on cool. the same we're page. We're on the same page. <laughs> so our real story starts on Friday, February 22nd, 1946, in Texarkana, Texas. A 25-year-old insurance agent named Jimmy Hollis took his 19-year-old girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, on a double date to the movies with his brother Bob and his girlfriend. At the end of the date, Jimmy drops the other couple off at home, but on the way to take Mary back to her house, they stop off at a secluded road that was well-known among the local teenagers as, like, the lover's lane. After being parked in total darkness for like 10 minutes, a man appears at Jimmy's driver's side door and blinds him momentarily by flashing a light directly into his eyes. Jimmy didn't know like what was going on or if this person was pranking him, so he just told the man that he had the wrong person. And the man outside responded with, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do as I say. He points a gun at them through the window and then tells the couple to get out of the car through the driver's side door. Then he told Jimmy, quote, take off your goddamn britches. So was he (laughs) pretending to be a police officer during all of this? No. Like he, 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 he just, it was just a random man who approached the car. And flashed a flashlight in his eyes. Yeah. And then told them to get out. So this couple survived. So what they said later was just they were totally confused and they thought this was a misunderstanding or something like it was maybe like another teenager or something pranking them so after jimmy did what he was told the man took out his gun and pistol whipped him twice and later on mary told investigators that the sound of jimmy's skull fracturing on impact was so loud that she actually thought he had been shot oh my god i know 
So at this point, Mary thinks that this is a robbery. So she grabbed Jimmy's wallet to show that he had no cash on him. So the man asked her for her purse, but when she told him that she didn't have one with her, he hit her with an object, which was likely either the gun or the flashlight. Um, She didn't know which one it was because it was all dark, and he knocked her to the ground. He told her to stand up, so she does, and then he tells her, run. So remember, this is in total darkness. They're down in a country lane in the 40s. There are literally no lights whatsoever, apart from this guy's flashlight. She's So she doesn't even know where she's running at this point. She's just like probably aimlessly no, and sprinting. Like it, right. And who's to say that she was even following like where exactly they, you know, drove to, you know, she wasn't driving. So there's just... It, just imagine all of this through like the most confused disoriented eyes possible because it's just it all happened so quickly so and so terrifying you just see your your boyfriend be attacked yeah so they're down this dark country lane she's in high heels and at this point she also thinks that her date had just been shot in the head so the moment that he tells her to run she just bolts without even considering where she was going And it turns out she was actually heading directly into a ditch when the man yelled after her to run in a different direction instead. So she. Oh my God. Yeah. So she does it. After letting her run for a minute, he starts to jog after her. So basically, this is like a cat and mouse game. Yeah. But she didn't know that. Like, she wasn't aware that he was running after her. So, not far from where she left Jimmy and this assailant. She found a car parked on the side of the road, and she beelined to it, thinking it might be another couple, but it was empty. And just as it occurred to her that the car could belong to the guy who had attacked them, he caught up to her and asked her why she was running. And she was like, I'm doing it because you pointed a gun at me and told me to run. He calls her a liar and knocks her to the ground, then sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. I am... First, I was holding my breath the entire time you were telling that part of the story. (laughs) Um, That is, I can't imagine anything worse than that. Yeah. The lights of a passing car surprised them both, and the attacker jumped up and ran away into the woods. So Mary got up and ran in the opposite direction for help. She tried flagging down another passing car, but it didn't stop for her. So she ran for about half a mile before she made it to a nearby house and she just ran straight to the door and started banging on this is like the middle of the night and it was just some house she didn't know the people there and she just runs straight up to the door and she's screaming and banging on it and they woke up and let her inside and they called the police meanwhile jimmy had regained consciousness and when he realized that the attacker and mary were gone he also ran from the scene So when he got to the nearest main road, he flagged down a passing car with a couple inside. And they stopped for him, but obviously a man coming out of the woods in the middle of the night, covered in blood with no pants on, was terrifying. So they didn't I know I wouldn't stop. Yeah. They but they did stop for him. They just didn't let him in the car. So they left him there and they promised they would go to the nearest phone to call the police. Roughly 30 minutes went by before law enforcement found Jimmy at the scene of the attack. And obviously, at this point, the attacker was long gone. Mary was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. But Jimmy's multiple skull fractures left him in critical condition. And he spent a couple of weeks in a coma. 
When Jimmy woke up and he could finally be interviewed, he and Mary ended up giving police completely different descriptions of their attacker. Mar- oh, no. Yeah. So Mary insists it was a black male wearing a white pillowcase over his face with holes cut out for his mouth and eyes. But Jimmy thought that the man was a white male in his 30s, and he doesn't recall seeing a mask or a pillowcase. And eyewitness accounts can be unreliable for a number of reasons, but when you consider the victims had been in complete darkness and Jimmy was suddenly blinded and then knocked unconscious before his eyes could readjust, it makes sense that he wouldn't recall significant details. But Mary, on the other hand, wasn't directly blinded. But even if her sight was impaired from the flashlight, she was conscious the whole time and there was ample time for her eyes to readjust to the darkness. And then she also came face to face with the attacker more than once. So while it's very possible that she did have the more accurate description of his appearance, she had also just experienced a horrifying attack. So it's just difficult to say. But after interviewing Mary... Law enforcement came to this strange conclusion that Mary knew the attacker and was covering for him, so they repeatedly challenged her recollection of the attack. So based off of information that I could find online, my opinion was that the police had a hard time believing there could be such a huge discrepancy between the two victims' descriptions. So I think that their conclusion that Mary personally knew and was covering for the attacker was mainly due to a lack of understanding that we have today of eyewitness accounts and and like how unreliable they can be. But that's just speculation on my part. I guess it's also possible they were just being sexist. And they yeah, took- absolutely. Like, no, no, no. You don't recall what you think you recall. Right. Your female brain. Yeah. The only real thing that Jimmy and Mary could both identify about the assailant was that it was a man who didn't sound very old and he was about six feet tall, which is basically nothing to go off of from the cop's perspective. So given that there wasn't much physical evidence and the police were doubtful of Mary's story, nothing happened in the case. No suspects were interviewed and it just sort of fell flat. A little over a month later, on the morning of Sunday, March 24th, a passing car noticed a strange thing. And rather than stop to look further, the driver went to the police and reported having seen what looked like a sleeping couple in a parked Oldsmobile on a deserted road. When the police go to investigate, they discover the car's occupants had been killed execution style. The male was in the front seat on his knees slouched over the console that divided the front seats and his head was lying on his crossed hands and his pants pockets were all turned out and he'd been shot in the back of the head. The female was laying face down across the back seat and had also been shot in the back of the head. So when people say execution style, does that mean in the back of the head? Yeah. I never knew that. Both the victims were fully clothed The girl was wearing a class ring with the initials PAM45 engraved on it. And in the purse that had been left sitting next to her, police found a photo of her posing with a dog. The male had definitely been shot inside of the car, 
but there was a blood-soaked blanket next to a large blood stain on the ground outside of the car, which made the police think that the female victim had been killed outside, left to bleed out, and then placed in the back seat. The victims were identified as 29-year-old Richard Griffin, a veteran who had been discharged from the Navy only four months earlier, and his girlfriend of six weeks, 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore. She had just graduated from high school the year before. Richard had been working as a carpenter and a painter, and Polly had been working at a local grocery store. Uh, I couldn't find anything on that age gap. (laughs) Okay. This guy was 29 and she was 17. Maybe they were just friends. No, they were dating. Ugh, okay. The victims were last seen alive around 10 p.m. the night before when they were finishing up a double date with Richard's sister and her boyfriend at a local cafe. So given that the murders took place partially outdoors and it had rained for a few hours prior to the victims being found, and also that this was the 1940s, police were fighting an uphill battle in terms of collecting evidence. They even discovered footprints leading away from the crime scene, but the rain washed it away before they could do anything to document it. The only solid thing that they found was shell casings that came from a 32 Colt pistol, but there was, that was it. There was yeah. literally nothing else that they could do with that. So on top of that, town gossip spread like wildfire, and a large crowd of onlookers had gathered literally within minutes of the police themselves arriving. <laughs> At the crime scene? Yes. Helpful. Yeah. Great. And there's really muddled information on whether or not the bodies had been properly examined. There were rumors a sexual assault had taken place, but there was no public acknowledgement by law enforcement. And supposedly the physician who examined the bodies noted that there was no evidence of rape or assaults of a sexual nature. For some reason, it's very muddled. So Mary, the girl from the first attack, started experiencing frequent nightmares about her attacker and for the first time in her life was afraid to be alone. She wanted to put distance between her and anything that reminded her of what she'd been through. So within a couple of weeks of the attack, she moved to live with an aunt and uncle in Oklahoma. But when she heard of the murders of Richard and Polly, she knew in her gut that the man who attacked her was responsible for this second attack. So she goes back to Texarkana police, insisting that the crimes must be connected. But because they didn't really believe her account of what happened in her own attack, they just sort of dismissed her. Once again, (laughs) sexist. Yeah. And obviously, since we watched Mindhunters, we know that the idea of serial killers did not come to be until like much later in the 70s. So following patterns in crimes wasn't the norm. And without following the patterns... Law enforcement also didn't recognize that criminals often start out small and work their way up to larger crimes. So it sounds crazy for them to not see the similarities in the attacks, but that's just how it went. So they write Mary off and proceeded in their investigation with the idea that the murder case was an isolated incident. But even though they wrote her off, I don't mean for this to sound as though they weren't taking the investigation seriously because it was quite the opposite. A massive investigation that included multiple police departments, sheriff's departments, the Department of Public Health and Safety, and the FBI was in full swing almost immediately. Within three days of the murder, police had already interviewed over 60 witnesses. Wow. 
They posted a $500 reward, which would be around $7,000 in 2020, for any information leading to an arrest in the case. But nothing helpful came from this. They literally got over 100 false leads. So between the gossip and the number of false leads, there was an article published in the Texarkana Gazette that essentially scolded the people that, like, they shouldn't be gossiping. Um, if they have any good leads, they should take it to the police and not talk about it around the water cooler. And I, I can post like a little portion of it. I found it on Wikipedia, but it's it's literally an article scolding the townspeople for gossip. Well, they're intervening, you know, they're interfering with an active investigation that's wasting their precious time. Yeah, it's understandable. I'd scold them, too. But despite hitting the ground running, there was next to nothing to go off of, and so the whole investigation moved pretty slow. So in the 1940s, Texarkana was a bustling but pretty quaint town, and it's situated directly on the border of Texas and Arkansas. So because it's a town divided by state lines, it made the investigation kind of difficult in a few ways, because you had two police departments, two governments, two fire departments, and so forth. So the two different jurisdictions can complicate matters, but in particular, two different state jurisdictions is like even harder. So all in all, police interviewed well over 200 people, but still literally nothing came from this. And the case just kind of goes cold. On Friday, April 12th, 1946, 16-year-old Paul Martin left his parents' home in Kilgore, Texas, to make the two-hour drive to Texarkana. He planned to spend the weekend there with friends and then return home on Sunday evening. Paul had lived in Texarkana when he was much younger, and although his family had moved a few hours away, he still kept in touch with his friends and would go back to visit them, including a pretty girl named Betty Jo Booker. Paul and Betty had known each other since kindergarten, and they'd always been close friends, but then once they got to high school, their friendship turned a little flirtatious. It blossomed. Yes. <laughs> Betty was a year younger than Paul, and she played the saxophone in multiple bands, both at school and locally with, like, legit adults who played gigs around town. What a cool chick. I know. I love that. One local band in particular, the Rhythm Airs, was strictly a males-only adult band, but when Betty Jo auditioned for it, she was so good that they let her join. <laughs> So the plan for that weekend was that Paul would come to see her perform with the Rhythm Airs on the evening of Saturday the 13th, and then they'd go on a date afterwards, and then after that, Paul would take her and drop her off at her friend's house for a slumber party. So I have to show you what they look like, because I was really taken aback by his picture specifically. She's so beautiful, and she easily looks like she's in her 20s. But little Paul Martin legitimately looks like he's seven years old in this picture. Oh, no. <laughs> so, like, did this 16-year-old actually look like a seven-year-old? Or did his family provide a photo to the paper that was, like, multiple years old? Yeah. I'm very confused. And I don't mean for that to sound like I'm picking on him. I was just so surprised because he looks so young. Okay, I have to send it to you. Text it to me. Yeah, it's coming to you. Oh my god. I know. I don't they definitely sent like a I would say a fourth grade school picture. Um, it's an adorable photo, but that's 
that's not that I don't that couldn't have been him as an adult. Sixteen year old. Yeah, as a sixteen year old. No. I think I think he was closer to, to eleven. She's gorgeous. I know. She's a beautiful woman. So anyways, apparently Betty Joe was a full blown rock star with that sax. And the Rhythm Bears knew how to give the people what they wanted because that show went so long that Betty Jo wasn't even done until 1.30 in the morning. Oh my gosh, Encore. And sweet little Paul, he stayed and watched that whole time. That's so sweet. So obviously they couldn't go on their date, but he was still planning to give her a ride to her friend's house. So even though it's like 2 in the morning by this point, they were still going to find a little time to get in some smoochin'. So they stopped off on a dark, secluded lover's lane. Around 6.30 a.m. on Sunday, April 14th, a couple with their tiny son discovered Paul's body on the side of the road. He had been shot multiple times in places that gave the impression that he was probably trying to run away when he was shot in the back, then shielded his face when he was shot through the hand, and then finally shot in his face and neck. On the opposite side of the road, there was a large puddle of blood that didn't seem to come from Paul. So after investigators determined who the victim was and that he was last seen with Betty Jo, a huge search party formed to find her. Five hours after Paul's body was discovered, the body of 15-year-old Betty Jo was found two miles away. She was on her back under a tree and her body seemed to be staged. Her coat was closed all the way up to her chin, and her hands were in her coat pockets. She had been shot once in the chest and once in the face. So if you rewind a little bit to the first attack on Jimmy and Mary a couple of months prior, the reporters chose not to disclose in their reports that Mary had been sexually assaulted because they thought it would be inappropriate to share that in a newspaper. So with that dumb logic in mind, it's been very confusing trying to determine whether or not Polly, the first female victim to be killed, was sexually assaulted as well. That's where I said it was just like all very muddled. The papers claim that she wasn't, but there were all these rumors that she had been. So with Betty Jo, there was very clear evidence that she had definitely been raped. And so for some reason, it was either leaked or the reporters decided it was acceptable to announce that. Either way, there were a number of similarities between all three crime scenes, including the presence of shell casings that came from a 32 Colt pistol at both of the murders. Neither victim was found anywhere near Paul's car. Paul was found almost two miles from it, and Betty Jo was over three miles away from it. This made it super difficult to determine the order of events and how the couple wound up so far from each other and so far from the car. Unless you compare it to, like, the first attack, and then I wondered, like, maybe the attacker had ordered them out of the car and ultimately repeated the same acts, like, attack and kill the man and then chase the woman. But there's no way to know, so that's just me guessing. It's only after this murder that the police are like, okay, three similar crimes in three months. It must be connected. So their funerals were held on the same day, only a few hours apart. Betty's mom stated that if they found the man who murdered her baby, she would kill him herself. Paul's mom stated that before he left for his weekend in Texarkana, she had a terrible feeling that something would happen to him. She thought he would get into a car accident or something like that, and she regretted letting him go. 
Oh my god. Mothers just know. Like that gut instinct. Mm -hmm. Out of respect for their lost band member, the Rhythm Airs chose to never perform again. Wow. A confusing possible lead with Betty Jo and Paul's crime scene was the fact that her saxophone was missing. It wasn't with her body, his body, or in the car. So, about a week after their murders, police were alerted that a very suspicious-acting man tried to sell a saxophone to a music store in Corpus Christi, over 500 miles away from Texarkana. When the employees asked him about the instrument and where he got it, he literally grabs it and ran from the store. Not suspicious at all. No. So the store alerts the police, and that guy ends up being found and arrested a few days later. He didn't have a saxophone with him, and he wouldn't admit to ever having one. But he did have on him a pistol he bought from a pawn shop after the whole music store fiasco. And the police found that he had a bag of bloody clothes. He claimed it was blood from a fight he'd been in a few days prior. So they identified this man, questioned him, and let me guess, wasn't the guy? Yeah. After a few weeks, police end up clearing him completely and announced that there was no way he could be a suspect. So I read that and it was just like, oh my God, come on. Of course he was, of course it was him. It had to be him. Yeah, of course. But luckily for everyone, I am not in law enforcement because six months later in October of 1946, Betty Jo's saxophone is found a very short distance from where her body had been. I couldn't find any explanation for that so it's really odd for a few reasons there's so much mystery surrounding what really went down with that murder given how spread out it all seemed like did she run from the car with her sacks or did the killer actually take it but then months later put it back near where her body was found like just to fuck with everyone or had the sacks been there all along and everyone missed it during the search for her body so just like all of the other crime scenes there's essentially no evidence for the cops to go off of so the entire town and surrounding areas is just in this full-blown panic just waiting for the next attack a bunch of local teenagers spend the weekends trying to create traps for the killer by filling their cars with weapons driving to a secluded lover's lane and then wait while other kids like wait in the bushes like trying to set booby traps mm-hmm And all that did was complicate the police efforts because suddenly all of these isolated areas were filled with tons of vigilante teenagers. So the residents of Texarkana start buying up extra locks for their doors and windows, more guns and ammo and anything else that made them feel less like city ducks. So a little less than a month later, on Friday, May 3rd, 1946, a married couple named Katie and Virgil Starks were settling in for the night. They lived on a 500-acre farm on the Arkansas side of Texarkana. They were both 37 at the time and had known each other all their lives because they grew up on neighboring farms. And they became high school sweethearts and eventually married. They were widely loved and respected by their massive group of friends and family and their whole community. They didn't have any kids, but they were very family-oriented. Katie's sister lived on a farm directly across from theirs, and Virgil's family lived just a few miles away. So it was around 9 p.m., and Virgil was sitting in the living room listening to the radio. Katie decided to go to bed early, but he asked her to bring him a heating pad for his back first. 
So she brings him the heating pad, kisses him goodnight, and she goes to her room. She's only in bed for a few minutes when she hears weird noises outside the house. So she yells out to Virgil to turn the radio down and then almost immediately hears glass shattering in the living room. She runs out to see what happened and finds her husband slumped over, partially out of his chair, covered in blood. The broken window his chair had been in front of faced out onto the front porch, but it was too dark for her to see anything. So later it's determined he had been shot in the back of the head, but Katie didn't know that at the time. He was so covered in blood that it wasn't clear right away that he had even been shot. She just knew immediately that he was dead and she ran to the kitchen to call for help. But she only just picks up the receiver when she gets shot through her cheek. The bullet exited under her ear and as she's turning around, she gets shot again through her jaw, shattering almost all of her teeth and the bullet gets lodged underneath her tongue. Oh my God. So just remember, this whole thing has happened in the span of like two minutes. She's trying to go to bed, and then her husband is all of a sudden dead, and she's shot multiple times. All the while, she can't see outside because it's night and the interior lights are on. So she doesn't even know who's done this or if they're still out there. This badass was just shot twice in the face, but she manages to crawl on her hands and knees back to her bedroom. So once she's in there, she realizes she needs to get to the pistol that Virgil keeps in the house but it's kept in the living room. So as she's trying to figure out how to manage this, she hears someone at the back of the house trying to get through a window directly next to the bedroom. So she crawls out to the living room and starts looking for the pistol. But this woman has been shot in the jaw. She's blinded by her own blood. She's in severe pain. Her teeth are literally falling out of her mouth in clumps. And looking over at her husband's body, she knows she's completely alone. She can hear the person still struggling at the back porch. And just as she considers trying to scribble a note to leave for her family, she's just like, you know, fuck this. And she gets up and sprints out the front door. Wow. She's a badass. She lives on a freaking farm. So like it's a 500 acre farm, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not like this is some suburban road where she can throw a rock and hit another house. It's pitch black. She's barefoot and in a blood-soaked nightgown. And again, she has a bullet lodged in her jaw. But this is her only chance of survival, so she keeps running until she finally gets to her sister's house. But her sister isn't home. Oh my gosh. So Katie has to fucking run to the next closest neighbor's house. And I don't know how far they were, but I can't imagine that that was very close. Luckily, this neighbor was home and he came out to help her. And when she told him what happened and that Virgil was dead, he goes to get his rifle, comes back to the front yard and shoots into the air to get another neighbor's attention. Wow. So this other neighbor hears the gunshot and comes out and they all get Katie into the car and they drive her to the hospital to alert the police. The fact that she's even able to communicate with a bullet lodged underneath her tongue and her teeth missing is beyond me. Yep. I I read this thing. I don't know if it was true, so I almost didn't add it. But I read this thing that like in the car, 
she pulled out a tooth that had a gold filling in it and gave it to her neighbor as like a thank you. I hope that that's true. I hope it is too. That's a, that's a great little additive. So the police arrived to the scene pretty quickly and managed to put out a fire that was caused by Virgil's heating pad that like had been left on the chair he'd been in. So they brought in like police smelling dogs or whatever they're called and followed the footprints and the scent of the killer throughout the house. They believe the killer managed to get in through the back where Katie had heard them, walked through the house, probably looking for her, and then followed her trail of blood and teeth through the front door. But the scent stopped at the highway, so they think the person left in a vehicle. A detective on the case named Tillman Johnson later said in an interview, quote, We tried to secure the crime scene, and we were in and out of the Starks' home all night long. We were running around trying to find leads and gather what evidence we could. We went to other people's homes in the areas to see if they had heard or seen anything. People would stand out near the front of their homes and yell at you to identify yourself before you got too close. You had to identify yourself or you would get shot. (laughs) Oh my god. So they believed that the killer had been watching them for some time, and after watching Katie say goodnight and go to the bedroom, chose to shoot Virgil, and then waited for Katie to come out to shoot her. The killer definitely saw her crawl back to her room, very much alive, and then chose to go around and try to get inside through the back. And what's even eerier is that there's a picture of the window that he shot through. There's only two bullet holes and the whole window was like still intact so there's one bullet hole for Virgil and then one for her and one for her but because she was shot twice it means that the gun was pressed up into the hole (gasps) and that he just did two shots like through the same hole as she was turning around oh wow and I don't know that's I don't know what it was there was just something about that there's something really creepy about it it's just so calculated and calm yeah Katie needed multiple reconstructive surgeries to fix her jaw, but she survived. A few days after the attack at her home, she was interviewed by the police and stated that she never once saw the person. She didn't even know if it was a man or a woman. 500 people attended Virgil's funeral, and many noted that Katie and Virgil were some of the best people that they had ever known. The Phantom Killer was the name that the newspapers had given to the man responsible for the Lover's Lanes attacks, and most people don't actually believe he was responsible for the Starks attack. While Katie's story of survival is just amazing and certainly worth sharing, the whole attack is just different. The shell casings found at the Starks' home were different from the previous attacks. The Starks were at their home, not out on a secluded road like the others. They were in their late 30s, while the other victims were all between 15 and 29. And this was the only attack to happen on the Arkansas side of the town. But because it was another couple targeted, it was near enough to the other crimes, and it followed the same MO of being a few weeks after the most recent attack, history has just lumped this attack into the story of the Phantom Killer. I find it interesting, and I don't know if you talk about this, but... That the others were in secluded roads and, you know, forested areas, and you would attack them while they're in a car, and then this crime occurred when they're in their home? Yeah, I just said that. Did you just say that? Yeah. Oh my god. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm so close to being done. So you. Okay. I, keep going. Yeah. I can't even believe my brain just did. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> the fuck? So whether Betty, Joe, and Paul were the Phantom's last victims, or if it actually was Katie and Virgil, none of these crimes have ever been solved. The police did as extensive an investigation as they could. They interviewed hundreds of people. They even took the lead of those vigilante teenagers and set up their own sting operations to lure the killer to secluded roads. And they did end up finding multiple suspects, but eventually they were all cleared. The only real possible suspect in the case was a man named Yul Sweeney, a career criminal whose focus seemed to be mostly on auto theft and counterfeiting. He and his wife Peggy were arrested in June of 1946 for trying to sell a stolen car. But during their arrest, they both seemed to think that they were being arrested for murder. Swinney begged the police not to shoot him and asked if they thought he'd get the electric chair for what he'd done. And the police were like, the fuck? Why would you get electrocuted for stealing a car? And Peggy, when she was arrested, said, how did you guys figure out that he's the phantom killer? What? Right. Peggy confessed immediately. She divulged very specific details, particularly about Betty Jo and Paul's murders. Because she knew about details that had never been made public, her confession was taken very seriously. But it seems like once she realized they had only been arrested for auto theft, she recanted her confession out of fear for what her husband would do if he found out what she had told them. So she claimed that she had been present, but did not participate, in Betty Jo and Paul's deaths, and that she'd worn heels. And the police later verified that they had found women's high-heeled prints near the bodies that didn't belong to Betty Jo. She also showed them exactly where Paul's car had been found and shared a detail no one knew but the cops, that Paul's date book was thrown into bushes nearby. And she showed them the exact spot, and it was, in fact, right where the police had found it. She claimed that the murder was a robbery gone wrong. She also directed them to a location that supposedly had an article of clothing that Swinney had stolen from the Starks' home, and when the police found it, they discovered Starks was written on the laundry tag. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything, because anyone could just write that. The police also verified independently that Swinney had owned a 32 Colt pistol, but had just recently lost it in a game of craps. Swinney never confessed to the murders, but he also never pleaded his innocence either. Peggy changed enough details throughout the multiple conversations with police, mostly revolving around her level of involvement, that eventually she was considered an unreliable witness. And because she was legally married to Swinney and couldn't be forced to testify against him, they didn't end up charging him with any of these crimes. He was, however, sentenced to life in prison for auto theft, but that was overturned in the 1970s and he was released. He died at a Dallas nursing home in 1994. Interesting. So Jimmy, the male victim from the first attack, moved away from Texarkana to start a new life. Apparently, he dabbled in acting for a bit before he began working for NASA. He got married and eventually had seven kids, and he passed away in his sleep in 1974 when he was 54 years old. Mary, the female from the first attack, also moved away, and I couldn't find any details on her life after the attack other than she passed away from cancer in 1965 when she was only 38. 
Katie, the survivor of what may have been this killer's last known attack, went on to live a very long and happy life. She made a full recovery and eventually remarried. When she passed away in 1994 at the age of 84, she was laid to rest next to her first husband, Virgil, and later on, her second husband was laid to rest on the other side of her. And that's the unsolved story of the Phantom Killer. Okay, so obviously my brain is going right now. What is the when, What year was the man that was arrested for auto theft? When was he released? I could, f- I could probably find the exact year, but all I wrote was the 1970s. Okay, so my brain immediately went to the Zodiac Killer because, you know, the lovers in the car making out, being shot by a random murderer... Um, it, they just sounded very similar, but yeah. I know the Zodiac operated during the sixties as well. So yeah, there's always been rumors around this killer that maybe because he was never caught that maybe he went on to do the Zodiac crimes. I have never, I didn't even bother looking into it, uh, when I was writing this story, but, but it's a rumor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe I'll look more into that because I'm very curious. Yeah, you should. That was a really good job, Ashley. Thank you. There's no way that a killer like this would stop murdering humans. I mean, he's so calculated, and I feel like they're only escalating. You know, he went from random attacks in the woods and on the streets to inside of couples' homes. And it makes me think that there had to have been some incarceration to make someone like that stop killing. Yeah, or death, or... Did they just move away and stop or do it somewhere else? Like, that's what's so unsettling is because it just, he was doing it, like, once a month. I think all of these happened in, like, a 10-week span. And so then to all of a sudden stop is, like... Very suspicious, and that's why I was thinking incarceration, moving and operating somewhere else, and, you know, terrifying a new city. Mm -hmm. And this other interesting note is that when I was doing research... Um, on this crime, I discovered that earlier this year, the FBI released, I think, all of the files that they had on this phantom killer. So um, I'll try to link that on our website if anyone wants to to look at those uh, files. It's pretty interesting. Very interesting. Well, I know what case I'm going to be covering next week now. You mean the Zodiac? Yeah. Oh, that's going to be good. I'm excited about it. Okay, well, I love you. I love you too. See you next week. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.